afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got stories about the situation involving the dune shacks in the Peaked Hill Bars Historic District, as well as an uncomfortable situation involving the police that happened right in the backyard of our schoolhouse here on Commercial Street. Will David is off this week, but Ira Wood is here, and he's got a matter of opinion about how you can tell when you're no longer a wash ashore. On the day that Sal Daldea was supposed to be out of Frenchie's Dune Shack, which he and his family have occupied for more than 70 years, Sal and his son Romolo were met at the shack by a group of supporters and reporters from the Boston Globe, Cape Cod Times, and Provincetown Independent. Although no officers of the National Park Service came to the shack that day, June 27th, park rangers did show up to enforce the eviction notice one day later. Seashore officials contend the shack has been used without legal authority and notified Del Deo that he had to vacate the property. After issuing a joint statement urging the Park Service to reconsider, the state's congressional delegation, including U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren and U.S. Representative Bill Keating, wrote a second letter to the National Park Service saying that Mr. Del Deo's extraordinary connections to the dunes demand extraordinary consideration and that there is no benefit in leaving the shack vacant. While leases have gone out to bid for eight shacks in the Pete Till Bar's historic district, no RFP has been issued for Frenchie's shack. Although the Park Service did not immediately respond to the letters, State Representative Sarah Peake, State Senator Julian Sear, U.S. Representative Keating, and Representatives for U.S. Senators Markey and Warren met with officials from the National Park Service and Superintendent Brian Carlstrom last Thursday to lobby on behalf of the dune dwellers. Visual information specialist Lizzie French said that the National Park Service is following laws and regulations and balancing the needs of individuals against the park's obligation to steward the seashore and provide equitable access to it. She said some dune shack dwellers have overstayed life estates that have terminated and are therefore using public lands for their private and exclusive benefit. While staff from the National Seashore boarded up Frenchie's shack on Thursday last week, National Park Service officials have confirmed that the agency is now looking at ways to allow some use of the shack by the Del Deos. On Friday, June 30th, Cape Cod National Seashore Superintendent Brian Carlstrom called Romolo Del Deo and began by saying that he was calling at the direction of the Secretary of the Interior. Romolo said that Carlstrom asked how Sal was feeling and said that Park Service authorities were doing everything they could and would be getting back to the family shortly. In a rapidly evolving situation, it seems that the meeting between the legislators and members of the Park Service may have had some effect. 
Sear said they told the Park Service that its arguments about preserving public access to the dune shacks were undercut by the fact that the new leasing program didn't allow nonprofit or arts organizations to bid for leases. Discontent with the dune shack leasing, they told park officials, will only get louder. Romolo told The Independent that he had been planning a protest near the toll booth at the National Park Service's Herring Cove Beach parking lot for July 4th, but he called the protest off after the phone call from Carlstrom. Romolo added that the rangers who evicted the family from the shack were as decent as they could be, and said that if everything could be resolved, they would be happy to come back and help open the shack back up. Thousands of college-age partiers celebrating the 4th of July overwhelmed Dennis police and staff at Mayflower Beach in Dennis on Tuesday, despite extensive preparations. Around 2.40 p.m. that day, Dennis Police Chief John Brady decided to close Mayflower and other nearby beaches on the bayside of Dennis. Police made a number of arrests and quantities of alcohol were seized. In the past few years, Mayflower Beach has become a destination for college-age people looking to party on Independence Day. Last year, people had to break up crowds at Mayflower and other nearby beaches. Police were determined not to have a repeat of last year's chaos and put a plan into place to deal with the situation. Police set up a command center on the beach and changed traffic patterns in the neighborhood to decrease congestion. Even with those things in place, the influx of pedestrians and drop-offs continued to cause problems. According to police, the mobs started arriving at dawn and didn't stop. The beach parking lot filled up by 10 a.m., and the crowds began to overwhelm nearby restaurant Chapin's Bayside, where staff guarded the private lot the entire day. Around 5 p.m. Tuesday, police began clearing the beach just before thunderstorms rolled in. Police closed the parking lot until Wednesday morning to give the town time to clean up Mayflower Beach. Trash included cans, towels, shoes, broken glass, and what police described as contraband. Police did not comment on the number of people arrested or what they might have been charged with. A beach monitor estimated that several dozen people were arrested, mostly for alcohol-related offenses like underage drinking. Christmas tree shops in Hyannis, Orleans, and West Dennis were ordered to start liquidation sales this week and may soon close their doors permanently. The three Cape Cod stores are among a total of 74 Christmas tree shops that are subject to a court order issued this week following a bankruptcy filing in May. At the time, the company announced the closing of 10 stores, including one in Falmouth and a flagship store in Sagamore. Three more Cape Cod stores will now be added to the list. Charles and Doreen Belzikian founded the Christmas tree shops in 1970 in a store on Route 6A in Yarmouthport, and the Belzikian family still owns the property under the stores in Falmouth, Sagamore, and Orleans. The Orleans location was opened in 1982. On June 5th, the bankruptcy court authorized the company to refinance in order to pay employees and restructure the company. Since then, the company has not been able to meet the financial obligations of that loan. The order this week indicates that all store locations in Massachusetts will be liquidated. 
Landlords had until Thursday to object to the order, after which time the stores will be forced to hold going-out-of-business sales. Court documents indicate that the company plans to close the stores unless a buyer can be found promptly. Folk musician Patty Larkin tripped and fell during a family vacation last June, suffering a spinal cord injury that could have left her a quadriplegic. On Thursday, July 13th, Larkin will make her Outer Cape comeback at the Payamette Performing Arts Center in Truro with veteran singer-songwriters Cliff Eberhardt, John Gorka, and Lucy Kaplansky in a group show titled On a Summer's Night. The accident occurred right before a summer full of bookings. Larkin had also committed to a show on a winter's night, which was to go on tour in January 2023 with Eberhardt, Gorka, and Kaplansky. When she came out of surgery the day after the injury, Larkin says the doctor told her she could be paralyzed indefinitely. But she was determined to recover. Over the course of the summer, she would spend five weeks at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Sandwich before transferring to the Spalding in Brighton, where she would spend another several weeks. After her surgery, Larkin was confined to a wheelchair for two months. Playing the guitar and singing were, in the beginning, physically impossible. But as her treatment progressed, she moved from basic exercises to more complicated guitar parts and piano pieces. She also had to work on redeveloping her voice. By breaking down the act of singing into small, discrete steps, she gradually rebuilt her vocal range. In late August, after more than two months at the recovery centers, Larkin returned to her home in Wellfleet and began to walk on her own. After her almost miraculous recovery, Larkin was able to perform and tour with the show on a winter's night. And at the Payamet Tent on Thursday, she'll debut on a summer's night. In the show, each of the four artists will perform a mini-set. In the second half, they will sing together. Patty Larkin, Cliff Eberhardt, John Gorka, and Lucy Kaplansky perform at the Payomet Performing Arts Center in North Truro on Thursday, July 13th at 7 p.m. For tickets and information, you can visit payomet.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A phone call to police from a citizen falsely reporting that a person was displaying a gun at an East End playground in Provincetown set off a traumatic situation for several young men of color who were playing basketball. The incident has led town leaders to examine ways to increase training and education to battle bias and racism in Provincetown. Provincetown Police Sergeant Jennifer Nolet described the June 18th incident as having started when dispatch received a call on the business line from Noy Reyes Jr., a local man known to police from previous encounters. Reyes reported that he was driving by the East End playground at the corner of Howland and Bradford Streets, and he witnessed a male dancing with a gun in his hand. According to the police report, Reyes described the male as a black male with cornrows and identified a white Subaru as a possible involved vehicle. Police were dispatched to the area. Meanwhile, several teenage basketball players, young men of color, 
had no idea that their evening was about to take a turn. 18-year-old Anthony Teixeira was one of those basketball players. He told the Cape Cod Times that the group was sitting in the car catching their breath when multiple police cruisers pulled up and told them to put their hands up. Teixeira said the police had their hands on their guns and were saying not to reach for anything. The police eventually came over and put one of the young men in handcuffs, told them all to be quiet, and then interrogated them. According to a Provincetown police narrative of the incident, written by patrol officer Adam Hanna, the basketball player described by the citizen caller was placed in handcuffs. Patrol officer Daniel Sheehan immediately conducted a pat frisk of the individual, and no weapons were found. Hanna's report substantiated Teixeira's statement that police told the men not to move their hands or make any sudden movements. Hannah wrote that the subject seemed to be very confused and didn't know what police were talking about when they said there was a possible gun in possession. The male parties began to explain that they were just playing basketball. According to the police narrative, when Nolet arrived on the scene, the basketball player was released from handcuffs. In her supplemental narrative, Nolet wrote that she apologized and advised that no harm was meant and that police were simply investigating the report. Teixeira said he was glad that no one got hurt, but change needs to happen because if someone had cracked under the pressure, the situation could have turned out very differently. The change that Teixeira would like to see was front and center at a meeting of concerned citizens and town officials at the East End Playground on Monday, June 26th. Provincetown town manager Alex Morse held a meeting with police and concerned citizens where he said that although people assume that in places like Provincetown, social forces like implicit bias and racism simply don't exist, that these things happen in these types of things happen in all communities. Regarding the incident, Morse said, In this call in particular, you have people in this neighborhood looking at young men of color playing basketball. These are kids that grew up here in Provincetown, kids that most people know. And as we've seen nationally and internationally, the weaponization of police is incredibly dangerous. And so first, Morse said that he's thankful that it wasn't a worse situation and that no one got hurt. In order to ensure public safety moving forward, Morse said we have to educate the public and the community about what calling the police actually does and actually means, particularly for people of color. It's a threat directly on people's humanity and on people's lives. We want to make sure moving forward that officers know our community and know our kids. Provincetown Police Chief James Golden said during the meeting that police were in the middle and were responding to what was reported to be a very serious call. When the officers arrived, they have a duty, he said. They try to isolate the person involved, to try to determine if there's a threat to anybody else or to the community, and that's what was done. The person was removed, the person was restrained for a moment, checked for a weapon, and then released, he said. It became very apparent to the police officers within a minute of being on location that there was something the matter with the call, that something wasn't adding up. At the meeting which took place at the playground where the incident occurred a week earlier, Select Board Vice Chair John Golden said, An apology is not even near what needs to happen here. 
He called for diversity and de-escalation training and suggested that Chief Golden needed to change his ways. And Gina Lithcott, a black Provincetown resident of over 15 years who is a member of the town's school committee, said she, like the officers, is glad no one was injured. But, Lithcott said, the incident and outrageous police response showed a real need for community policing, which would entail a warmer relationship between residents and officers. Except for Teixeira and the 16-year-old who was handcuffed, both of whom spend summers in Provincetown with their families, the players involved are all year-round residents. According to the supplemental police report of the incident, Reyes, the citizen who reported the presence of a gun, was contacted by officers after the event and told that no gun was located. Reyes insisted on the accuracy of what he saw. In response to a question from the Cape Cod Times about whether someone who makes a false report of a crime can face criminal charges, Golden said that, generally speaking, the false report would have to be proved to be made not merely by accident or through negligence, among other criteria. He added that it is an aspect of the case which is still an active part of the investigation. The Truro Select Board voted 4-1 to one on June 28th to extend the town's contract with town manager Darren Tangeman. The vote came during an executive session and was announced by Chair Kristen Reed at a public meeting of the board the following day. Reed told The Independent on July 3rd that the only negative vote was cast by Vice Chair Sue Arison. The decision came in the wake of a campaign urging the board not to renew the contract in the face of a June 30th deadline for notifying the town manager that his tenure would end with the current contract. As of June 29th, the board had received at least 65 emails calling for Tangeman's ouster, with a litany of complaints about his performance. At an open session that preceded the closed one on June 28th, the board decided to authorize an independent investigation of a complaint that Arison had violated the town charter by seeking negative information about Tangeman from town employees. The campaign to dismiss Tangeman focused on his management style and that under his leadership, the town has experienced rapidly increasing taxes and is in danger of suburbanization because of his supposed advocacy for the development of affordable housing at the town-owned Walsh property. More recently, many of the complaints have focused on the siting of a proposed DPW facility. Many of the complaints about Tangeman are based on misunderstandings of the town manager's duties and authority. The town manager does not set policy or make decisions about whether to build new housing, and he's not responsible for tax increases because the town budget is set by the select board and approved by town meeting voters. Reed has announced that Tangeman's performance review will be discussed by the select board in an open session at its next meeting on July 11th. Some questions have arisen about the openness of that review and whether the board's way of conducting it complies with the requirements of the open meeting law. Over the past several months, the members of the select board met with Tangeman in private one-on-one sessions to evaluate his performance. Before those one-on-one meetings, all the parties, including Tangeman himself, filled out standardized evaluation forms. 
The open meeting law states that where a public body is discussing an employee evaluation, these discussions should be held in open session. But, because one-on-one meetings do not involve a quorum of the board, they technically don't fall under the law's requirements. All the town manager performance evaluations were scored as acceptable or higher by all members of the select board, Reed said when she announced the board's vote on Tangeman's contract. She added that no formal complaints have ever been levied or pending against the town manager, and he has never violated the town charter or Massachusetts general laws. Asked what materials will be made public regarding the decision at the board's July 11th meeting, Reed wrote that it is still being determined by town council and select board, but at a minimum, a summary memo of the evaluation will be in the packet. The Truro Select Board voted on June 28th to investigate a complaint that Vice Chair Sue Arison had violated the town charter by talking to town employees about town manager Darren Tangeman's job performance. The vote was 3-2, to two, with Chair Kristen Reed, Stephanie Rain, and Bob Weinstein in favor, and John Dundas and Arison opposed. The complaint came in a June 13th letter from attorney Adam Dupuy, who said he represented a Truro voter who wanted to remain anonymous out of fear of retaliation. Dupuy asked for an independent investigation into what he referred to as a whistleblower complaint. Arison's lawyer, William Henchy of Orleans, argued that Dupuy's letter should be ignored because of a select board policy against responding to anonymous complaints. But Truro's town council, David Jenkins, disagreed. I don't think this is an anonymous complaint within the meaning of the policy, he told the select board, because we have a contact person who will have the ability to speak to whoever made the complaint. He added that the policy was not a hard and fast rule, and that the board always has the flexibility to look at complaints. On behalf of his client, Dupuy alleged that Arison had violated three sections of the town charter, by conducting an unauthorized and unsanctioned investigation into the town manager, by acting under individual authority, and by communicating directly with town staff instead of through the town manager. Town Council Jenkins told the board that upon receipt of a complaint, probably the worst thing that a town can do under any circumstances is to ignore the complaint. Towns or employers in general get in trouble when a complaint is received and not dealt with. A follow-up letter from Dupuy, dated June 15th, alleges that between April 10th and 21st, Arison met with four town directors without approval of the town manager and one other town non-director employee to specifically solicit negative feedback on the town manager. Reed said that the town council would recommend an independent investigator to conduct a formal inquiry into the complaints against Arison and prepare a fact-based report to the select board for further consideration. Kimberly Newman has started as the new Orleans town manager, and she'll be plenty busy in her first few months on the job. The select board reviewed Newman's upcoming schedule of events, meetings, and appointments at their June 28th meeting. Uh, 
In her first appearance as town manager on July 2nd, Newman attended a pancake breakfast at the Orleans Fire Department. Her first day in town hall was Monday, where she was given a tour of the building and took time to meet with town staff and department heads. Newman also took part in Tuesday's 4th of July parade. From there, Newman's schedule only gets busier, with meetings booked with numerous town boards and committees and several meet-and-greet events on the docket into September. Select Board Chair Michael Herman said that committees will each give Newman a short overview of their ongoing projects and initiatives in their initial meetings with the new manager. With Newman's arrival, the Select Board last week also took time to acknowledge the work of Interim Town Administrator Charles Sumner, whose tenure in that post ended on June 30th. Sumner, who worked for almost 30 years as town administrator in Brewster and has also held interim roles in Provincetown and Wellfleet, started working in Orleans at the start of the year following the retirement of longtime town administrator John Kelly in December. Sumner will still work with the town in a contract capacity to help Newman as she starts in her new role. In other news from Orleans, after some initial questions surrounding staffing, Sumner told the select board last week that there's more confidence around the town's ability to help support the return of a music festival to Nauset Beach. Organizers plan to bring back the rebranded Outermost Music Festival after a four-year hiatus. Sumner said a walk of the proposed concert area was to be held on June 30th with staff and event organizers. He also said attendance this year is expected to be scaled back from 5,000 people to about 1,000 and that additional contracted services will be used to help town staff manage the event. Sumner said applications for a one-day liquor license and one-day entertainment license could come to the select board for their consideration on July 12th. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. Do you have secret places, hikes through thickets of blazing orange daylilies, hidden ponds far from the summer crowds, do you tell people about them? What people do you tell? When I first moved to Cape Cod, I had a favorite beach, just a gentle recess between the dunes on the bay side. To reach it, you drove down a deeply pitted, narrow sand road, always mindful of cars in the opposite direction. Once every summer, it seemed, it took out my muffler. And yet the hassle was all the more rewarding, because once there, you felt that you had earned the pleasure of a long bake in the sun, or a solitary walk, or a nude swim. In anticipation of a business trip, my wife and I asked some friends from Boston to house-sit. Wanting to be a gracious host, I showed them my special beach, but asked them very seriously to please keep the location a secret. But a few weeks after our return, there they were with four of their friends who would no doubt tell four more of theirs. It may have been the first time it occurred to me, places like this were secret treasures, 
not to be given away. Some years later, and now a member of the select board, I was at a meeting with the Cape Cod National Seashore Superintendent, who shared their plan to advertise all of the park's bike trails and dune walks and hiking paths, among them the little beach I loved, to visitors from all over the world. In a kind of panic, I made a wild proposition. I suggested that, of course, they'd want to highlight all the park's big public beaches, but why not say that the park is full of hidden treasures for visitors to discover for themselves? And they bought it. The little beach was still safe. Its cover was blown for good, however, when a freelance travel writer sold an article about it to a large national newspaper that appeared the Sunday before the 4th of July. Within days, the parking lot was jammed, cars got stuck in the sand, and the beach was littered with plastic bags, diapers, and beer bottles. I know it's naive to imagine we might still have secret places out here. Certainly now, when uploading a photograph of a beach to Instagram offers many people more pleasure than actually swimming in it. But an old-fashioned part of me has always thought we ought to earn the right to special places, either by living here long enough to find out about them from the old-timers or discovering them on our own. Right or wrong, it seems to me, there are dues to pay. Lately, posts from a new social media network have begun appearing in my inbox, primarily used by newcomers seeking local connections, on the face of it, a helpful service. Except, what does it mean for someone to suddenly move here and consider themselves fully entitled to know all the places it took you years to find out about. The other day, I saw a post that said, Hi, I'm Heather, your new neighbor from West Hartford. We just opened our new summer house. Where's the best place to pick blueberries? And where can I park when the Newcomb Hollow parking lot is full? I can really tell... I've become a crusty old Cape Cotter when I start sounding exactly like the people who used to call me a wash ashore. But in my opinion, having an extra $900,000 for a second home does not make someone my neighbor. My neighbor is in the house across the street shivering when the power goes out in February. My neighbor is struggling to find a new primary care doc for her family because hers just left the local health service. My neighbor sits next to me on very boring town committees. Heather is not my neighbor. She is entitled to every joy that the Cape has to offer. But I'm not going to tell her where to park near Duck Pond or where I get salté mulch, or where to pick blackberries, she's going to have to live here long enough to discover it for herself. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. (laughs) 
And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz with Joel Shaw here on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.